Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples, and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and open them with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. This morning we are continuing our new series on the seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And as I said last week, I believe that we'll find this series to be helpful to us as a church as well as to us as individuals. And so I hope you're coming in kind of with that 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 two-pronged division where you're looking at this and, okay, how can our church learn and grow from this as well as what does God have for me? How can I learn? How can I grow? Last week, we looked at the letter to the first church, the church at Ephesus, and we saw that it is possible for a church to have all kinds of great characteristics. The church can work hard, toil to the point of exhaustion, be grounded in truth, defend truth, resist sin, have spiritual discernment, all of these great things. But if we've lost our first love, meaning if we do all of those things and it's not motivated by a love for God and a love for others, that it's really a, a, a sickness at the heart of our church. It can destroy us. And we saw from that church last week, the church at Ephesus, that they failed to heed the warning of Christ. And as a result of that, they no longer exist. And so we challenged ourselves last week. Let, let's heed that warning. Let's pay attention. Let, let's see that all that we're doing is motivated by a love for God and a love for other people. Not just going through the motions, not out of habit. This week, we're looking at this letter to the second church, the church at Smyrna. And it's a little different feel this morning. Last week, the message was very challenging, kind of a step on your toes type message. The message this week is more encouraging. It's more of a motivating us to try and respond correctly to persecution. I want to go ahead and kind of draw our attention into the text and Help us understand a little bit about what's taking place. You see in verse 8 that this letter is written to the church at Smyrna. And if we're going to understand what is taking place in this letter, kind of the backdrop of this, we have to understand the setting. The church at Smyrna, or the city of Smyrna, was a hotbed for persecution. In fact, this was a place where, a place that was under Roman control. And so as a result of it being under Roman control, the Roman authorities demanded allegiance. Not only did they demand allegiance, they actually wanted all people in that area to bow down and pay homage to and actually worship the emperor. And so many times what would happen in this city and cities like this is that the Jews would do that. They would say, well, I I can still go through the practices of Judaism and I can bow down and pay homage to Caesar. And they didn't see any conflict with that. And those who followed other religions would do the same thing. They would, during the week, they would go through and, and kind of have this loyalty to their religion. But when the time came, they would pay homage to Caesar. And they would worship Caesar and worship the emperor. But the Christians wouldn't. I mean, the Christians would stand up and say, we can't. In fact, the law of God 
commands us not to. And so we can only worship Christ. We cannot bow down and worship the emperor. We, we cannot bow down and worship Caesar. We cannot do that. And as a result of this, persecution began to grow because Caesar saw this as a, a disrespectful kind of a throwing away of his authority. And so they not only demanded it, they began going around. And if they heard of someone who was a Christian, who was unwilling to pay homage to Caesar, worship the emperor, they would come and they would try to persuade them. And initially that persuasion would just be kind of through speech. But if they they would resist the persuasion, then they... The Roman authorities many times would begin to intimidate and would begin to torture. And many times Christians were even put to death. And in cities like this, the executions were not humane. In fact, if we go through and just look at how many of the apostles died, you learn very quickly that this was not humane deaths. In fact, Bartholomew, who was a follower of Christ, was filleted alive. John, who is writing this before he was kind of an outcast on the Isle of Patmos, was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil. All of the apostles, all of the early followers of Christ died cruel, torturous deaths because they were willing to follow Christ. This morning, that backdrop sets the stage for our text. And so what we're really going to see is the message that you see on the screen. How do we respond to persecution? Now, what makes this a little bit challenging is we are not witnessing here in America people being put to death because of their faith. But I want to remind us very clearly that there are places around the world this morning where there are Christians who are enduring persecution, suffering, and many times martyrdom because they are followers of Christ. There are churches who are meeting underground and in secret because they know if they meet out openly and they sing openly and they read God's word openly and they preach openly, they know that they will suffer persecution, torture, and even at times death. Let's not be immune to that reality. Let's not ignore that reality. It's a reminder that we need to be praying for the persecuted church around the globe. But how do we apply that? We're going to talk about this throughout the message this morning, but I want us to understand how do we respond to suffering? And in that umbrella of suffering, let's add in ridicule and opposition. We, you may not be suffering necessarily persecution because of your faith this morning, but you may be enduring ridicule because of your faith. And you may be enduring some kind of opposition because of your faith. And it is possible that some of you this morning have been passed over for promotions which you deserve simply because it was known that you're a believer in Christ. And some of you may have been denied increases in pay because you're a believer in Christ. It is possible to live in a free country like America and suffer ridicule and persecution simply because we follow Christ. So how do we respond? Well, our text this morning shows us several truths that we need to embrace. And if you notice on the back of your bulletin, there is an outline that I want to encourage you to fill in those blanks as we go through this. Here's number one. First thing that we need to learn about this. Number one, we need to realize that those who follow Jesus faithfully can expect opposition and persecution. Those who follow Jesus faithfully can expect opposition and persecution. It's a reality. For the believer. In fact, Jesus in John 15, 20 said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And let me ask you, was Christ persecuted? Absolutely. We could go through and talk about all the things that he endured in his life. But let's pause just for a moment and be reminded just of one aspect of what Christ 
suffered because of who he was. We don't even have to go into all the details of all that he endured on crucifixion week. But just think about one aspect. I think most of you are aware that Christ was whipped. That whip was a cat of nine tails. And on this cat of nine tails, what it was was leather strands. On the end of those leather strands, at different places on those leather strands, they would take and they would tie pieces of rock, pieces of bone, glass, stone, whatever they could find that was sharp, they would sharpen them. Whatever they could find, they would tie along those kind of those tentacles of that whip. And so whenever they were whipping, in their mind, the criminal... Whenever they were whipping the individual, in this case, whipping Jesus, they would whip that whip and those tentacles would, with those bones and glass and stone, would dig into the back and they would rip it off. They wouldn't just gently go and pick it off. They would rip it off. And so as they would go through those 20, 30, 40 lashes, it literally would shred the back to the bone. The tendons would be ripped completely. This was not just a whip. Just kind of a a regular whipping. This tore the back to shreds. And if you remember the chronological events, there was a robe then that was put on Christ. And that robe would act much like a scab. And it would become attached to the back. And then when, if you remember later on, they, they ripped the robe off him, which once again was excruciatingly painful as they took that off and exposing all the wounds on his back. And then he was nailed to a cross and... If you know anything about being nailed to a cross, just that alone is painful. The hands are nailed through the wrists. The feet are placed on top of each other and a nail through the feet. But the only way to breathe on a cross is to push yourself up. Because when you're hanging on the cross, everything's collapsed and you can't get a breath. And so the individuals hanging on a cross then would have to push up on their feet to get a breath. Understand that the cross was not a smooth, sanded down piece of wood, but a raw tree, basically. And so even the the pressure of pushing up on your feet was painful, but then rubbing your back on a rough tree just to get a breath. And then at the moment you would get a breath, you would collapse back down, your entire weight of your body being caught by the nails in your hands, your wrists. So when we say that Christ suffered, he suffered. And we're going to see the significance of this in a few moments. See, we can go around the globe this morning and there is nowhere where we can go where someone is suffering, where Christ does not understand. And we're going to see the significance of that in a moment. But understand right now that those who follow Jesus faithfully can expect opposition and they can expect persecution. It is a reality. But there's a key word in this point that you see on the screen that I don't, I don't want you to miss. And it's the word faithfully. It is those who are faithfully following Jesus who can expect persecution. See, if you are not faithfully following Jesus Christ, there is no reason for the devil to, to persecute you because there's nothing in your life persecutable. See, it is only when you are faithfully following Christ that your life is worth oppressing. 
See, if we simply attach the title Christian to our to our life, but yet it's not something that transforms us and it's not something that affects us and it's not something that we truly live out in day to day life, then then it's there's no reason for our lives to be affected. It is only when we say that the fact that I am a Christian changes how I live and how I operate, and how I act and react, and it changes my priorities. It is when the fact of your faith transforming you that your life then becomes a life That will experience persecution. But expect it. Don't be shocked by it. Understand that it is a reality for believers. Number two. We need to realize also that Christ comforts his people during persecution. Christ comforts his people during persecution. And there are several truths in verse 9 and 10 that kind of highlight this. Here's the first one. Here's A. We need to know that Christ knows of the persecution you are facing. You may not be facing being burned alive, but you may be facing ridicule and you may be facing opposition because of your faith. I want you to know that Christ knows. Look at verse 9. Twice in this verse we see this. Look at verse 9. It says, I know your affliction. I know your affliction and poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. Twice in the verse, Christ says, I know. So whatever it is that you are facing because of your faith, whatever opposition you are dealing with, whatever ridicule you may be putting up with, simply because you are a follower of Christ, be comforted by the fact that God knows. He knows. But building on top of that, we need to realize that Christ understands. Christ understands. He's aware of the persecution. He knows it, but he also understands his B. He understands the persecution that you're facing. And the original language of the Bible, there's two different words that are translated into English as no. One refers to a head knowledge. Excuse me. <clears throat> one refers to a head knowledge. The other refers to experience. The one used here refers to experience. Here's what Christ is saying. Not only am I aware of what you are facing, not only do I know what you are facing, I have experienced it. See, all that Christ went through on the cross is so, in part, that we have a sympathetic high priest. He is tempted in all points like as we are. He is tested in all points like as we are. He has endured everything that we face. So that when we come to Christ, we come to a Christ who knows what we are facing. He understands the persecution. He understands the ridicule. He understands the opposition. Not simply because he is God and he sees it, but because he walked on this earth and he experienced it. See, that should drive us to the feet of Christ. There is nothing that you and I can bring to the feet of the cross. There is nothing that we can bring to the feet of Christ that he does not personally understand. He knows what you're facing. He's experienced what you're facing. Bring it to him. He is a sympathetic high priest who then pleads your case to God on your behalf. Not as someone who simply looks from the outside and says, that must be tough. I'll see if I can do something about that. But someone who comes along beside you and puts his arms around you and says, I know what you're facing and I know what you are enduring and I know what you're going through because I have been there. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation in your life where you've had to go and talk to someone. But if you've ever been in a very trying situation in your life, isn't it a whole lot easier to talk to someone who's experienced what you're experiencing? It makes a difference. 
I want you to know this morning that when you're facing persecution and ridicule and opposition, you can go to Christ. And he not only knows, but he understands because he has experienced it. That provides comfort. The third thing or C that I want us to notice from our text this morning is that Christ reminds us that material poverty does not equal spiritual poverty. Look at verse nine and one more time. It says, I know your affliction and poverty, yet you are rich. Let's pause right there. I know your affliction. I know your poverty, yet you are rich. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about their material poverty, their physical poverty. They did not have anything. And this doesn't mean that they were simply living paycheck to paycheck. This means that many of them had absolutely nothing of their own. They were perhaps beggars who some of them sat on the streets begging. If they had, if they ever, ever had owned anything, they lost it because of the persecution they were facing. They had every reason, humanly speaking, to collapse under the oppression of the opposition and persecution they were facing. They were literally dirt, poor, owning nothing. But Christ looks at them and says, I see your physical poverty. I see your material poverty. But I want you to know that you are spiritually rich. You, you have what really matters. You have salvation. And you have holiness. And you have an undying love for God. And they had peace and they had fellowship and they had a sympathetic savior and comforter. They may have been physically poor, but they were spiritually rich. Now, there's two sides of this that we have to understand. Physical poverty does not mean spiritual poverty, right? At the exact same time, physical wealth does not necessarily mean spiritual wealth. We have to separate the two. We have to separate the physical from the spiritual. There are churches who have absolutely nothing. And some may look at those churches that have no building really and have no possessions really and have no money in the bank. And they may look at that and say, well, what are they accomplishing for God? But I want you to know something. I want to state this plainly. There may be churches that have absolutely nothing. And to us, they look like. Nothing, but to God, they're the most beautiful church on the face of the earth, because even though they are materially poor and physically poor, they are spiritually rich. And at the exact same time, don't miss this. It is possible for a church to be physically and materially rich, have buildings and facilities and all kinds of money in the bank, but be spiritually bankrupt. Because they trust in their resources and they trust in their buildings and they trust in their money. Simply because a church has nothing does not mean they're spiritually poor. And just because a church may have everything does not guarantee that they are spiritually rich. I went on a mission trip to Costa Rica when I was 16. In fact, I turned 16 in Costa Rica. And on the day of my 16th birthday, we went to an island in Costa Rica that had no electricity and no running water. Any of you ever been anywhere that had no electricity and no running water? Okay, a few of you have. And they had absolutely nothing. And so we got on a boat and we went over to this. And we were going over there because they were going to have a church service. And so this island was seven miles all the way around. And obviously no cars, no vehicles. Everybody walked. And so we go to this church building. And when you church building is probably misleading there wasn't a building it had been trees that had fallen down that they had buried and they had just scrap pieces of tin leaning across as a roof and other trees that had fallen down they laid them down that was what people sat on was old trees that were kind of rotting 
And the service was almost three hours long. But when it got time for the service to start, everybody came walking, some from three and four miles away. And several days before, it had rained and it was muddy. There was no paved roads or anything. It was just dirt roads and people walking in covered in mud. I mean, some of them up a foot, up their leg, just mud. They came, sat down on the logs. But let me tell you something. That church, if you were to ask them how much money they had in the bank, you know what they would say? Bank. They had nothing. Let me tell you, their worship, their singing, their response to the preaching of God's word, it was sincere. And I am 100% convinced that as I think back to that church, they had nothing. They were physically and materially poor, bankrupt. But I believe in God's eyes, they were spiritually wealthy. I think as they worshipped, it was a sweet smell to God. I believe believe as they ministered to each other on that island that God was pleased. You may look at that and say, well, they have nothing. God says they don't need anything. They have me. And there's other churches that have everything. But they trust in what they have more than they trust in the power of God. And they rely on what they have more than they rely on the leading of God. And even though they have everything, God looks at them and says, it's a stench. So we have to understand the material doesn't necessarily equal the spiritual. We have to be cautious. That's comforting, though, to know that it is possible to have absolutely nothing but be spiritually rich. Moving on, verse 10. There's a phrase in here that's alarming at first. Christ tells them, be faithful until death. That'll wake you up, won't it? Be faithful until death. Here's the third truth this morning that we can learn. Perseverance through persecution proves the genuineness of one's faith. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now understand here that Christ is not saying, if you are faithful unto death, then I will reward you with the crown of life. It is not an earning of salvation. This is not an earning of eternal life. What Christ is saying is that when you persevere through persecution, you validate your claim to faith. Persevering proves your faith. See, saying that you follow Christ when life is perfect does not validate anything because anybody can do that. But face the sword, face being burned alive, face face losing everything for the cause of Christ and persevering in the midst of that all of a sudden becomes something that validates your claim to faith. Jesus says those who persevere in the midst of persecution and opposition and ridicule validate The claim to faith. See, if you say that you are a follower of Christ and persecution comes and opposition comes and suffering comes. And when the pressure of all those events come, you back off and you renounce your faith and you turn away from your faith. There's a problem. But if in the midst of all that you stand firm and you say, regardless of what happens to me, I will proclaim the name of Christ and I will worship God alone. That then validates your claim to faith. Number four. Jesus is worth dying for and Jesus is worth living for. That verse 10 again, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Here's what Jesus is saying. If it is necessary for you to be faithful unto death, be faithful unto death. But if it doesn't come all the way to death, still be faithful. So whatever level of persecution you face... And whatever level of opposition you face, and whatever level of pressure and suffering you face because of your faith, be faithful. Christ is worth living for. 
and Christ is worth dying for. But if you are not willing to live for Jesus, you will never be willing to die for Jesus. If we say that, well, if I was, if I was facing that kind of persecution, I would take a stand. Listen, if you're not willing to live for Jesus in freedom, you'll never be willing to die for Jesus in persecution. And there are people who are doing more for the cause of Christ in the midst of hostile persecution than many of us are doing in wide open freedom. And I heard on a video one time someone who had endured persecution and imprisonment say, never give up in freedom what we hold to in captivity. And what he was saying is never give up in freedom, never lay aside in freedom what we are committed to in bondage. Meaning that many of these people at the risk of death and bondage are sharing their faith and praising Christ and living public Christian lives. Even though it means they're going to, it's going to cost them something. And for us it's not going to cost us anything but we lay it aside. If we're not willing to live for Christ, we will never be willing to die for Christ. Let me give you number five. And this is a hard one for us to grasp, but it is true. Our great hope is not removal from suffering, but resurrection from the dead. So many Christians get this wrong. So many Christians think that when facing intense persecution, that our great hope is deliverance from or removal from the persecution and suffering. But that is not how the biblical authors presented it. The biblical authors had a a more eternal perspective. See, a temporal perspective, an earthly perspective says, the only hope I have is to be removed from the persecution and to be removed from the suffering. Many of the biblical authors had this eternal perspective that says, even if I am not removed from the persecution and even if the suffering continues, I still have hope because of the resurrection of Christ. That is why in verse 8, this passage begins with this teaching on who Christ is. Notice what it says. The first and the last. The one who is dead and came to life. So it's stressing the resurrection of Christ. So because of the resurrection of Christ, those who are followers of Christ have the promise of resurrection. So no matter what happens to you on this earth, if you are a believer in Christ, you have the promise of eternal life. Let me tell you that it makes it so much easier standing and preaching at a funeral of a believer. And many of you have been there. Someone who is a believer in Christ has passed away. And regardless of the cause, regardless of what has led to their passing, if they're a believer in Christ, that eternal perspective means this is not the end. And we have hope that continues beyond the grave. And that is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, death, where is your victory? Victory comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. So our hope is not in removal from situations. Our ultimate hope is found in Christ. Let me show you how the biblical authors believe this. Go with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to go here quickly. Hebrews chapter 11. It's the faith chapter. I'm going to start reading in verse 35. Many times we go to Hebrews chapter 11 and we read of all of the great victories, right? We hear of all the great things that people did through their, through their faith and how God used them. But sometimes we stop short. Verse 35. Kind of still on this high note, women received their dead. They were raised to life again. But then the tone shifts suddenly. Some men were tortured, not accepting release so they might gain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. 
They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All of these were approved through their faith. See, they they held to their faith. They held to their beliefs, even though it meant they lost their lives because they knew their hope was not in a removal from a situation, but their hope ultimately was in their faith in Christ. It changes how we live. It changes how we respond to difficulties. It changes how we how we respond in persecution and suffering and ridicule and opposition. The most intense. Persecution for the church at Smyrna happened about 50 years after this was written. The Roman Empire became serious about kind of stamping out Christianity. And the primary leader of the church about 40 years, 50 years after this was a man who learned from the Apostle John by the name of Polycarp. How many of you have ever heard of Polycarp? All right, a few of you. Now the rest of you can say you have. Polycarp was, again, taught by the Apostle John. He was an early church father, but he was the head of the church in Smyrna. He was who all the other leaders and pastors came to in Smyrna. But let me tell you how Polycarp died. See, Polycarp, this was written to him. This is not... This suffering that we just talked about and this persecution that we just talked about, this is not theory for him. Polycarp would have read this firsthand. And 40 years after this was written, maybe 40 to 50 years after this was written, Polycarp lived this. There was intense persecution and to the point where they were going around and hunting Christians, trying to persuade them to turn their back on Christ. And many people were put to death. Polycarp at this time in his life was 86 years old, 86, and he'd been a leader in the church. He was at the end of his life. He heard that they were coming for him as a leader in the church of Smyrna. He knew that that he was kind of a high valued target, so to speak. And so the Roman rulers were coming for him. They wanted to come. They wanted to capture him. They wanted to persuade him in their mind. If they could get Polycarp to renounce Christ, then maybe they could get all these other people to renounce Christ. And so they came and to the house where he was, and before they arrived, someone sent word to Polycarp that they were on his way, and so he was persuaded to leave and go to another house. But when they arrived to this first house and they saw that Polycarp was not there, they got two teenagers and they tortured one of them until that teenager told them where Polycarp had went. And so they went to this other house and Polycarp was there and they kicked in the door and they came in and out front was the horses and the chariots and they came in and they asked Polycarp, are you Polycarp? And he said, yes. And immediately Polycarp asked that food and drink became out, be brought out for these people who had come to arrest him. And so they brought out food and drink for these people. And Polycarp said, I will go with you willingly. Simply allow me an hour to pray. And so in their minds, they had food to eat, and this was a nice gesture, and so they started eating their food, and they granted him the hour. And so he didn't go up to another room, he just stayed in the same room where they were eating, and he walked over to a corner, and history says he stood in the corner, and he raised his arms, and he prayed out loud. And it says that he was so full of grace that he prayed nonstop for two hours for all the churches and all the believers that he knew and all the pastors that he could think of. Prayed nonstop standing with his arms lifted up for two hours out loud while his 
to be captors were standing or sitting at the table behind him eating. And it says it was so full of grace and truth in his prayers that some of those those soldiers who had come to arrest him repented of their sins and accepted Christ right there. But under orders, they arrested him and they brought him up into the leader's chariot. And as they would often do, they would try to persuade them at first to renounce Christ. They would basically say, hey, why don't you renounce Christ? Don't you understand? You can worship your God and you can worship Christ at the same time. And Polycarp says, no, I can't. And so this gentle persuasion all of a sudden turned hostile. And they were up in the chariot and one of the guards kicked Polycarp out of the chariot. And when he landed on the ground, he dislocated his hip and his hands are now tied and he stands up and he follows the chariot kind of into this public area where crowds are now gathered to see how Polycarp is going to respond to this type of persecution and this type of treatment simply because he's a Christian and simply because he will not worship the emperor and simply because he worships Christ alone. And so they bring him in and again, they try this soft persuasion and they say, listen, why don't you Why don't you renounce Christ? And he says, I can't. And they look at him and says, then we'll throw you to the wild animals. Because one of the things they would do is starve wild animals. And they would throw Christians to these. And the animals would eat them alive. And Polycarp says, bring on the wild beasts. He says, for 86 years I have followed Christ. And he has never done me wrong. How can I desert him now? Seeing that he was unaffected by the threat of wild beasts, they changed their tactic and said, you will be burned alive. This was known as perhaps one of the most painful forms of execution. And Polycarp, after hearing that he was to be burned alive, said, bring on the flames. And so they marched him out into the town square. In the middle of this town square, people are gathered around and The flames and the fires that they would build in order to execute someone were called funeral fires. And so they began assembling all of the wood and everything for the funeral fire. And what they would do is in the middle of that, they would have a cross that they would nail the person to to keep them from escaping the fire. And so it was both a mixture of a crucifixion as well as being burned alive. And so they put this cross in the middle and they got ready to take Polycarp over to that to nail him to that. And he responded by saying, the grace of God that allows me to endure the fire is the same grace of God that will allow me to stand in the fire without running. And so they didn't nail him to the cross. And he goes and he stands by the cross. They do, history says they do tie his feet to the cross just to ensure he will not run away. And they light the flame. And as history says, the flame actually lights around him and goes up around him to where it, the flame is not touching him. And the authorities seeing this, and as you can imagine, the crowds are beginning to wonder what is going on. This is kind of miraculous. The crowds are looking and they then order one of the soldiers to go and pierce Polycarp in the heart. And he died and his life ended and then his body was consumed in the fire. And you wonder, okay, how was he able to do that? Because you think, okay, they're going to throw me to wild animals. How many of us are going to respond, bring on the wild beast? You say, you're going to burn me alive, bring on the flames. See, I firmly believe that what we just read meant something to him. 
See, to Polycarp, this was not some theory of, oh, if I get laughed at at the office, what am I going to do? This was something to where he, he, he truly believed Christ is worth living for and Christ is worth dying for. He believed that his faith was real. He lived with an eternal perspective. He operated with eternal perspective. He died with an eternal perspective. He understood that regardless of what happens in this life, there is hope that survives the grave. So no matter what men may do to me, there's hope. See, the question that we struggle with, with with this kind of a message and with that kind of an illustration is the, the fact that we are not seeing anyone burned alive at the stake, thankfully. So how do we apply this? I mean, how do you and I, living in a free country where we can stand up and proclaim our faith and we can worship freely and pray freely and sing freely. How do we then associate and connect and apply truth from a passage of scripture about intense persecution? But if you remember at the very beginning of the message under the umbrella of persecution, we added a couple things that are connected. Ridicule and opposition. So we may think that it's difficult to stand up in the middle of intense persecution where our lives are being threatened and take a stand for God. Can I suggest to you that it's equally as hard to take a stand for God when your coworkers are snickering and laughing at you because they know you're a Christian? Am I the only one? Anybody up here? I mean, isn't that true? See, many times we like to think, well, if I'm ever in that situation, I will take a stand for God. Well, how's your stand for God going right now? How did you do last week? I mean, do you, did you really live in a way that demonstrated that you believe Christ is worth living for and Christ is worth dying for? See, if you stand up and say, I believe Christ is worth dying for, but you're not living in a way that says Christ is worth living for, then you don't really believe he's worth dying for. See, we have to live in a way that says we believe Christ is worth it all. And even though we are blessed that we don't live in a place where we are expected to die because of our faith, might I challenge you that it should be expected that we live because of our faith. We should live with that eternal perspective. And whatever persecution may come and whatever ridicule may come and whatever opposition may come, let me challenge you, live for Christ. Do exactly what Christ says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Don't be afraid of whatever you are about to suffer. Verse 9 says, I know your affliction. I know the slander that you are about to take. He instructs them, be faithful. That's the challenge this morning. Yeah, you may not be getting ready to be burned alive. Still be faithful. Be faithful. You know, this church, about 50 years after this was written, is when Polycarp lived. 75 years after that, they closed. Why? They no longer cared. The persecution became too intense and they buckled and they said, you know what? Christ isn't worth it. And when we get to the place where we say Christ is not worth dying for and Christ is not worth living for, then we'll eventually get to the place that we say Christ is not worth worshiping. Be faithful. Hold fast to the belief that Christ is worth living for and Christ is worth dying for. We stand with me this morning. 
Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at hpbc.church. Please join us again next week as together we seek to know Christ and make Him known.